Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Kevin, guess what? What, Rob? We now have over 50 iTunes reviews. <sighs> Huzzah! Huzzah! Indeed! Oh. We are climbing those iTunes rating charts. That's amazing. Yeah. How do we climb even higher? Can you take <laughs> me high enough? Little Rock of Ages for you. Do you know I like that you took it up so high too? You didn't even. You like went right to the tenor place. I was gonna do climb no it. Robert Goulet. Like, no. Can you take me high enough? Thanks for coming out tonight. Ooh, and my falsetto there. <laughs> Thank you. And a little Sergio Frankie. Yeah, a little Sergio. It's never over. <laughs> Much like the 24-hour buffet down in the lobby of the Dunes Casino. Me and Sid the Caesar. Two nights only at the Mirage. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, lovely listeners, this is where you come in. This is how we're going to climb those iTunes rating charts. That's right. Lovely listeners, if you love us, would you go to iTunes? Click on the iTunes store. Search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews. Under the Customer Reviews, click Write a Review. Then let us know what you think from one to five stars. That's right. And you can leave comments, too, like, Kevin Thomas is a god. Or, Rob, who the hell is Hervé Villachez? Who, 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 who is Hervé Via, uh, via that dude oh from my god! I fell for it See? again. You fell for <laughs> that it. wasn't even the, the man script. has never done <laughs> one musical in his entire life, and he gets mentioned more than Stephen. Right, Sondheim. but I love him from James the Bond. Okay, anyway, oh, yes. guys, help us out, please. please. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rob Schneider, and I'm Kevin David Thomas, and this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legend. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. This podcast was created to celebrate the legends of Broadway and to preserve their memories and anecdotes. We have spoken to legendary actors, legendary directors, legendary designers, and now a legendary audience member. <laughs> yes. Today's guest has had a front row seat, metaphorically, not literally, to some of Broadway's greatest shows like Follies, Fiddle on the Roof, 1776, and countless others. And at a tender age, he had the chutzpah to go backstage and talk to his favorite legends. And it's all in his new book, Up in the Cheap Seats. Here is the wonderful, and I think someone who's going to be a friend of us for a very, very long time, Ron Fassler. How are you, Ron? I'm great, and it Ugh. is a pleasure to be with such like-minded individuals. <laughs> Always. I, I, we're going to talk about the book in a second, but mm -hmm. I have to tell you, Ron has brought in two artifacts that are in front of us. We will post photos of this. They are two binders. Ron, would you explain what is contained in these two binders? Well, not only it's what's contained in them, they're the actual binders. I first began almost 50 years ago when I started going to the theater. I would come home from every single show and write my reviews. And, uh, you know, I'm an inveterate list maker. I'm sure people in our audience are also of that same <laughs> ilk yeah, yeah. who love to, you know, nothing but a good ritual to make you happy. Guilty. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I'm so thrilled and pleased that these didn't get thrown out by my mother or destroyed in a flood. And I, I have every review of every show I saw from the time I was 11 years old till the time I was 16. 200 
reviews. Okay, so walk us through how you lay out one of these outlines here. Because yeah. what, what, what do we see here? Well, actually, it's I, very official. It looks well, yes, very official. I actually official. made a form, and yeah. then my, my junior high school teacher uh, mimeographed it. For those who don't know what mimeograph was, it was from the days before we used to copy things uh, uh, on you know, the IBM machines, the Xerox machines, yeah. which are now you know, as commonplace as anything. Yeah. Uh, so it was called my play evaluation sheet. And there's an exclamation point afterwards, which you've got yes. to love. Yes. Play evaluation sheet, <laughs> exclamation point. So on this sheet, I would write down the play, the stars, the director, you know, who wrote it. But get this, the seat I sat in, what I paid for it the day I saw it, and then my plot synopsis and my review. And... I was only 11 when I started, so you can only imagine the hyperbole and the, the spelling errors alone are worth reading, but it's the fact that I was really attempting to be erudite. I don't know who I thought was going to read these one day, but I really tried to emulate, you know, Brendan Gill of The New Yorker, and, and, yeah. and so <laughs> my favorite line was, I called Hello, Dolly, Gripping. <laughs> the, the, the gripping musical. Oh, it is. Yes. It is. And, and may I say, in conjunction with my book, this is coming soon to a YouTube channel near you. I'm going to get all of my famous friends to read these reviews out loud. And I've already begun the process. I mean, can you imagine Nathan Lane reading one of these? It's brilliant. Oh, yeah. My brilliant. Yeah. God. And I'm going to have them read them cold, a la Red Rabbit, White Rabbit. Yes. Just, yes. just read them. Because if you start reading these... May I read one? Yes, do Please. it. Please. So this is a play no one's ever heard of. It's play number 16. Number, he's got the number, guys, in right. the top right-hand corner. So since I saw it on June 1st, 1969, that makes me 12 years old. Okay. Okay? Okay. And if you do the math, folks, I'm almost 60. Oh, Don't I fun. sound young on the radio? Oh, very. <laughs> so um, this was a play called The Year Boston Won the Pennant. Okay? Oh. And it was a limited engagement uh, downstairs from the Vivian Beaumont Theater, what oh, is now yeah. known as the Mitzi Newhouse. Yeah. In those days, it was called The Forum theater the form. and i paid three dollars to see this show three dollars huh. and uh it was by john ford noonan who's pretty well known for the play a couple of white chicks sitting around talking okay that was him uh the play starred a young actor named roy r scheider that was his oh. uh, one of his early plays in new york and it was a well it was a very dark dark comedy that i couldn't appreciate at 12 yeah <laughs> so here is my review it's a little angry and I'll try and read it without getting too, too There he, he goes, folks. The plot. A baseball player who's lost his arm tries to make a comeback. My review. This show is probably supposed to be in some way symbolic, but I fail to see it. The play shows the rise and fall of Marcus Sikowski's rise and fall. That's redundant. As a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. The fall due to his losing his pitching arm. How? We don't know. It shows him desperate for money, a man after his life, his wife faking their baby being kidnapped for publicity, his being beaten up and losing fingers on his only hand, his going to someone's funeral because it was said the boy killed himself because of Marcus, the wife kidnaps the people after Marcus, Marcus gets a fake arm, pitches at a stadium, and is killed. It was so bad, I could have slit my wrists. <laughs> I, ah, Twelve. Twelve. I'd Twelve. say that's like... Really good, actually. I, I would go see it. I, I'm, I'm fascinated. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to go back, go back to that for a second. Sure. Ron actually has here, not only the seat that he sat in, he also puts the price of the ticket. Yes. How much did it cost to see this production? $3, and the average ticket price throughout these 200 plays I saw between the years 1969 and 73 the, 
was three dollars. The average ticket. Can we? Do, what, what date were you born on? Nineteen eighty. But the, June twenty eighth. Twenty. What was number twenty eight in your play? Play twenty eight. What oh, was? Let's it? see what it is. I'm curious. Play number twenty eight. Here we go. Was Indians starring Stacy Keach. The Stacey Arthur Coppet play. Yes, Arthur Coppet. Yes. Okay, and I was twenty five, February twenty fifth. So what's twenty five? Twenty fifth play. Oh, he, and he's got, he's uh, got the so playbills. You're so close to Mame, Ron. Oh. This would have been yours. Yeah, you're played against Sam. <gasps> Woody Allen. Do most people know Woody Allen's movie, Played Against Sam, was originally a Broadway play starring Woody Allen where he met Diane Keaton? No. I, I, what? Wait, I'm just so happy There's I'm so much going on right now. Because I love Woody Allen. There you go. Yeah, it was actually a play, and he starred oh. in it and did eight a week. Can you imagine? Woody Allen showed up and did eight a week. I can't imagine Boy, that at all. Jeez. Yeah, for a long time. How much was that ticket price? $2.50. I saw it on a twofer. Can I explain to your audience what yeah, twofers uh, were? Yes, please do. Please, tell us what was twofers. What were twofers? Well, I'm sure your audience is quite familiar with the TKTS booth in oh, Times yeah. Square. When I was going to the theater, it didn't exist. Uh-huh. So if you wanted a discount ticket to a Broadway show, they had coupons that you could find, um, you know, at various, the visitor centers, mm-hmm. Bureau in Times Square. My school used to have them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used to send them to school groups. Uh, and they were twofers. Two for the price of one, essentially. That's how I saw many, many Broadway shows for as little as, as $2, a $4 ticket for $2. I, I'm, and I'm trying to, like, do the math in my head. Like, how do they, how do they make their money back with, like, a... You have to remember ticket. the top ticket price was nine dollars. Yeah. The, the the weekly nut, but nut was on like, running a show. Yeah, you're right. Can I just tell you that you know when I say three dollars and people in your audience must think I'm not sixty, they must think I'm hundred and twenty. <laughs> but the, the the fact the last row of Hamilton, if you can get the last row of Hamilton, is the list price is hundred and thirty five dollars. So when I saw seventeen seventy six in that theater in nineteen sixty nine, I paid three dollars for the last row. I did the math. That's a 4,500% increase. That's insane. Now, a loaf of bread was 30 cents, and now a loaf of bread is $4. But that differential is no. not 4,500%. Yeah. No. It's gone disproportionately out of whack to a point where, as my actor friend Peter Riegert says, it's not even on a human scale anymore. And it's very sad. And, and when people say to me, you know, what's your one wish for the theater? My wish is that it was open to everybody. Yeah. yeah. Because there was a time when going to the theater was as the historian Miles Kruger says, was as natural as breathing air. Yeah. And I don't know how we get back to that day. Yeah. Uh, certainly selling the first two rows of Hamilton for $10 in a lottery is a, is, a, is a step in the right direction. Correct. However, it is not the same as my knowing that this Saturday afternoon I'm seeing Hamilton with my tickets in my hand. You're right. Um, lotteries are not the same thing. Yeah. yeah. You know? I knew when I was going, where I was sitting, and I want that, again, for young people. And, and, and people... Young people are being really, really turned on by the theater thanks to Hamilton right. and Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. And we've got a new generation getting really excited about Broadway. Absolutely. And uh, my, my fear is that if their parents don't take them, how do they go? Right. Or if it's so expensive, they yeah. can't even afford and to go. their parents can't yeah. afford to take them. Yeah. Can God. I also tell you one thing about this, uh, my journeys, my yes. 200 plays? My parents never took me. All right, now that truly okay. is because you grew up in New York City. Yeah, it's a whole chapter in the book. Okay, yeah. so you grew up in Long Island. Is yeah, right? great, Nick. So I'm 25 minutes outside Manhattan. So how did you first develop an interest that the theater was something that you like? I'm assuming most children your age are Well, not it, it, it the... started with a movie. I saw the movie of The Music Man uh, when at... I was five years old at the Radio City Music Hall. And the minute I saw Robert Preston as Harold Hill, I knew I wanted to be an actor. And I fell in love with musicals in a way yeah. I hadn't prior to that. I was only five years old. But then I would 
open up the Sunday arts and leisure section of the New York Times, as I'm sure most kids today do as well, if, if they do have the physical paper, uh, and they, they want to know what's happening, I would look for Robert Preston. I would look if he was coming to New York. I, the way most kids follow a sports yeah. personality, I followed Robert Preston, yeah. and that took me to the theater because he was a man of the theater. Oh, he was. Wow. And, and just to pull back just a minute, you went to Radio City Music Hall, that big theater, and they played a movie... In oh, the I should tell. I really should. Do you know explain. what I mean? Like that's yeah. like. Did that, yeah, the Radio I mean, City can you Musical. Imagine? The Radio City Musical was built as uh, as a movie theater, but it's a six thousand seat movie Huge. theater. But they would give you a stage show for the price of your ticket. So you got the Rockettes, and you got a full fledged show uh, in addition to the movie. And here's a funny story. My grandmother, a few years later, took me to see a movie there, and the stage show starts starts first. So I watched the stage. I'm kind of bored. I mean, it's not that exciting. It's the Rockettes dancing. Uh, I'd never seen a Broadway show, so I didn't know what a show was, but I knew this wasn't exactly my cup of tea. So the minute the Rockettes finished dancing, the lights come up, and my grandmother turns to me and goes, okay, let's go. I went, what do you mean, let's go? Well, we saw the stage show. I went, yeah, I'm here for the movie. She goes, oh, I don't think this movie's appropriate. And I went, no, I want movies. I love movies. The movie was... The Sandpiper, starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. It was this sexy movie. Yeah. He was Hot. a priest, and she was an artist, and they had this passion. Let me tell you, to this day, it was on TCM recently, and I said, is this movie as hot as I remember? Yes! <laughs> straight, you saw with your straight, straight little boy that I was. I really did like Elizabeth oh, Taylar. Thanks, and Grandma. So did Richard Burton. Right. So there was a time where, uh, you know, and in the generation before me, my mother mm-hmm. used to go to see Frank Sinatra sing at the Paramount Theater in the 1940s. Yeah. She was one of those Bobby Soxers who screamed yeah. the way kids scream for the Beatles then right. and scream for Bruce Springsteen now. But I mean, she would go to see Frank Sinatra perform live, and then you got a movie. <laughs> All for about probably a quarter. Yeah. What did your parents do for work? My dad was an accountant. My mom was a housewife. And they did like theater and all that. But the thing was, I had five brothers and sisters. So in my family, nobody got any kind of special treatment. Nobody mm. ever said, like, okay, for you, Ron, we're going to do this for you today. No, right. we all, it was all very democratic. Yeah, yeah. And a little so they knew I had this passion for theater. Yeah. And they never thought to themselves, we should take him to a Broadway show. So the chapter in my book tells a story about the night I took my parents to the theater for my 50th play. Yeah. Not, they never took me. I took them. I was 13, and I took them to the theater. So, but they clearly supported it in that they were like, well, they, here's some allowance. Go, you know, go. They were extraordinary because they yeah. let an 11-year-old boy go into New York City by himself. So you, you would go into the city by yourself oh, yeah. from Great Neck. And can I explain to your audience that Times Square in 1969 was not a safe yeah, place. Yeah, take us around. there. Uh, well, if you want, just go watch the movie Midnight Cowboy or French Connection or Serpico. These movies were all set in that time I was going to the Times Square. It, it was the dregs. It was dark, depressing, dangerous. 42nd Street, what, all those like beautiful where the theaters. Disney, where were, the Disney yeah, thing is now. Those theaters were all porn houses. Yeah, right? They were all, uh, and it was pimps, winos, drug addicts. Uh, and and I never walked down 40 seconds. I, I just can't even imagine. There are also no theaters on it. Now there are three or four theaters. Well, yeah. Now it's a, it's a tourist area, trap, yeah. really. But never. it really was a, a dangerous place for an 11-year-old. Very dangerous. I was only mugged once. You? At 14. Oh. So, you know, only once. And I was fine. It, you know, they didn't hurt me. They just took my money. I tell that story in the book as well. <laughs> 
the book is so fascinating. The, the book is, is, is wonderful. I, I, I don't want to give everything away in the book. So. Well, let me explain a little yeah. bit what yeah. I attempted in writing the book. So for many years, I've been telling these stories about my adventures going to the theater as a little boy and uh, the adventures I had going backstage um, and meeting all these extraordinary people. Uh, and people have said to me, my gosh, that's a one-man show, that's a this, that's a that. And I went, no, I, I think it, it's a book. And I, and I set out to write it, and I thought, but gee, you know, I've had a, a nice career as an actor over the years. I mean, if you look at my IMDb page, you'll see I've got 100 credits in various oh, yes. television you, shows. You are recognized. I mean, no, no, like, no, and yes, I did sure. many oh. television yeah. commercials and all, but I'm not a famous face or a famous name. And I thought, well, you know, who's going to buy this book from Ron Fassler? So I thought what I'll do is because I'm connected, I've been in the business for 35 yeah. years, I sought out everybody I could possibly think of who was a part of this era of my going to the theater who was still around to talk about it. So I sat and spoke with people in their 70s, 80s, and even 90s. I got to sit with Harold Prince, sit with James Earl Jones, sit with... Well, Sondheim wasn't a sit. That was a phone call. But I mean to say, I got to really get the the behind the scenes stories I've always wanted to hear mm. from some of these people and that structure is the book the little boy my stories with the stories of the people of that time looking back on that time and it's kind of a hybrid that's why the subtitle is it's up in the cheap seats a historical memoir of Broadway. Yeah. Because I've mixed, it's a hybrid. I've mixed two genres, the oral history of Broadway and a personal memoir. Yeah. And, and that's what I think I appreciate most about the book, having, I've read half of it now, um, is that you, you don't, not only talk about your experiences, which are wonderful, but you give history to each of these shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, well-known shows, but I love the anecdotes that give us uh, fans of Broadway uh, an insider backstage story. But we'll talk about his experiences, yes. you know, and, and, and I think that is why the book is, is, is very effective. Well, the book, of course, has been cut down. The first draft I handed in, my publisher said, you've written a 500-page book. I went, no, I have not. I have not written Moby Dick. She went, yeah, well, the way when you put in the photos and the illustrations and we get it in the new form, you're going to be 500 pages. So I just start cutting back on the sure. stories. But the thing was, as people were reading it, friends giving me feedback... The absolutely consistent comment was, more you. And, yeah, I, kept thinking, nice. and I kept thinking, really? They went, oh, you don't get it. You don't get how, how interesting and how invested we are in your journey. And, and when I heard that, I thought, wow, that really does make sense. And I guess I've succeeded at something I didn't even, I wasn't working that hard. Because there was a bit of me thinking, eh, people aren't going to really be that interested in in me, let's get those stories from James Earl Jones and those stories from Harold Prince. No, no, they said those stories are all great, but you can find them in other books. Yes, it's the what passion. We, it's that kid. They said if, if if I'm on chapter six and I'm I'm reading about something and and I've lost the thread of the little boy, where's the little boy? Yeah, where's yeah. the little boy? So uh, I took those notes to heart. Let wow. me ask you a question. I want to go back for a second. So how did falling in love with Robert Preston on screen lead you to going to live stage shows? Well, I owe it all to Aunt Helen. Aunt Helen. Aunt Girl, Helen, we, not my parents, but there was an adult who We all me. have that Aunt Helen. We, we think, sure do. We sure know? do. Moss Hart had Aunt Kate. Yeah. Let's yes. not forget Aunt Kate. Yeah, right. Um, Aunt Helen took me to my first Broadway show, which was I Do, I Do, starring Mary Martin and Robert Preston. And you couldn't ask for a better intro to the theater than a two-character musical starring two of the greatest legends there ever were. And for me, as that ten-and-a-half-year-old boy... It was the Music Man and Peter Pan. So 
I mean, it was magical. And I don't want to give it away because that is the preface to the book. It is. Uh, something really magical happened yeah. to me that night, and then there's a full circle story that happened after. Robert Preston really is the talisman, and, and as I say in my acknowledgments when I thank my children, because I have a son and a daughter who are now 27 and 25, who have lived with my Robert Preston obsession their whole <laughs> lives, and as my daughter once said to me, just face it, Dad, you were in love with Robert Preston. <laughs> I think we all are. Yeah, I think I we mean, all are. And you know oh. what? Let me just say this too. I picked my idol well. Yeah. Um, he was the professional's professional. Uh, uh, anybody I ever worked with throughout my whole career, if I knew they had once worked with Bob Preston, I would say, "What was it like to work with Bob Preston?" I never heard anybody say anything heard. other than the best. Yeah. But I will tell you the one story you'll love. I'm, I'm sure you guys know, but your audience needs to know who the great Eileen Heckert was. This was a great stage actress who won a special Tony Award in the final uh, swan song of her career, the last place she ever appeared in, in New York, the Waverly Gallery by Kenneth Lonergan. Yeah. Uh, she also won an Academy Award for a play she created on Broadway, a part she created, Butterflies Are Free, which was play number, I think, 14 for me. <laughs> Butterflies Are Free. But that, believe it or not, Blythe Danner beat her for the Tony. She didn't win yeah. the Tony for playing the mother. She won the Oscar for playing the mother. So that's kind of a rare thing. Um, but Eileen Heckard had done a Broadway show with Preston, and when I sat with her years ago, because I knew her son, uh, <laughs> I said, what was it like to work with Bob Preston? She goes, well, he was great, but I was very upset with him while we were doing that play, because he was having an affair with Glynis Johns, and I loved his wife, Kathy. She was a wonderful person, and I did hear that about him. Yeah. He, he was quite a womanizer. Um, but, wow. I, but when I told William Daniels that story, because I wanted to talk to him about Bob yeah. Preston, because he'd worked with oh, Bob, geez. he said to me, when I said, well, he had an affair with Glynis Johns, and Bill Daniels said, can you blame him? <laughs> and maybe your audience knows, but Bill Daniels did play opposite Glynis Johns in yes. a little night music. He replaced Len Carrier. Oh, yeah. Isn't that funny? And Bill Daniels happened to be my very first interview. When I started this book, I started with... Bill Daniels. And for your audience, I'm sure they know him as John Adams in 1776, but of course, I'm sure they also know him as Mr. Feeney on Boy Meets World. Uh, please. And, by the way, has also published a book that is out right now. Uh, he has his autobiography. Uh, on, uh, you can buy it right now. So let me ask you this. When you go see I Do, I Do for the first time, when you're going there, do you realize, I'm going to document this experience, or is it when you come home, do you go, I'm going to document what I saw today. This is a bit of a cheat. I mean, the first night I saw I Do, I Do, I did not come home and write a review. Uh, It wasn't until a year and a half later when I had this notion that I could actually go see these shows by myself that I thought I'll do it. So I backtracked to write my I I Do, I Do review. But um, what happened was my first Broadway show was I Do, I Do. My second was actually an off-Broadway one. My grandmother took me to the original You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Then the third show I saw was Fiddler on the Roof, and that's when I first sat up in the cheap seats. And it was my neighbor, Mrs. Leboff, who took her sons, Kenny and David, and I to see Fiddler. And when I first got up there, I thought, holy moly, how am I going to see what's going on? Because I had, like, the best seat in the house for I Do, I Do. And and Jurgen and Charlie Brown played off-Broadway in a theater of about 200 people. So when you get to the top of the Majestic Theater, and for anybody who's seen Phantom of the Opera from up there, I mean, you are far away from the stage. I thought, how am I... And, you know, in those days, I don't know, those actors, they knew how to project to the last row. Don't forget... This was the days before they had microphones. So these guys were so expert. And may I also say, the actress playing title was Bette Midler, who knows how to fill a theater. She she was 22 years old. 
that was her Broadway debut. She fresh off the <laughs> fresh off the plane from Hawaii. You know she. Thank you, Joanna Merlin. That's Merlin exactly for right. That, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. so at intermission, I turned to Mrs. Leboff and said, "These seats are great. How much did they cost?" And she hands me the ticket stub, and it was three dollars and sixty cents. And I thought, "Gee, you know, I I make ten dollars a week in my paper route. I don't know. That's still a lot of money." She said, "Oh, the seats behind us are two eighty. <laughs> and I thought, "That I could afford." <laughs> And that's it. I turned to Kenny and David, and I said, you want to see some more Broadway shows? Yeah. And they gave me a noncommittal shrug, yeah. and I took that as a yes, <laughs> and boom. I started going to the theater every single week from then on. In. Every single week? Every week. Sometimes I would stay and see a matinee and an evening, and yeah. not get home till 11 at night. I'm 12. Yeah. Were there any that you missed yes. that you kicked yourself for? And you're like, well, you see, that? you got to remember, I'm trying to figure out, well, will the show close quickly? Do I have to see that in previews, or do I have two Because weeks? that was an interest. You're like, i got to catch it if it's going to close. Well, I, you know, I was obsessive. I wanted exactly. to see every play that hit Broadway. Same. Yeah. And some would close in one night, and you, and you blew it. Yeah. I, I mean, look, most of those shows I missed were bombs. I missed, um, I missed one I really wanted to see. Uh, it was a musical called Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen. Does Rob know that? Yeah, we, yes. Oh, we know this one. This is the one that uh, David, David, David Burns, Burns was in, that Jim Brochu showed us. Yes, it's a musical version oh, of The Tea House of the August God. Moon, and I see Rob's giving me like a signal, like, and we're gonna, I know, I'm reading your mind. No. There's a YouTube, you can go to YouTube and you can actually watch scenes, somebody with a black and white movie camera he, shot. Jim Brochu right? showed us yes. this. Yes, yes. It's, yes, it's on YouTube, just Google, uh, at YouTube, just go to, and look for lovely ladies, kind gentlemen. This footage is out of this world. Um, it's know. a Broadway musical that... Closed in two weeks, and I thought I had some time, and I missed it. And I missed David Burns' performance. David Burns was one of the great character actors of Broadway. He won two Tony Awards. He was the mayor in The Music Man, and Senex and Funny Thing Happened in the Way of the Forum. And can we just talk about, if you know The Music Man, how do you win a Tony for playing the mayor? You have no right? songs. You have no songs. I mean, no, you, I mean yes. he, he had to have been freaking hilarious. Right. And he was. He was considered one of the great clowns. Yeah. And I got to see him on Broadway in a couple of things, but his final performance turned out to be Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen, and he was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical posthumously because he actually died between the time Lovely Ladies closed and the time that the Tony Awards happened. But believe it or not, and this is a guy in his 70s, he was doing another Broadway show that was coming in from Philadelphia and in a very famous story uh, did his big number and when the number was over, got his applause, walked around to where there was a sofa, lied down on the floor, and died. He, he, he dropped dead on Broadway. And they brought down the curtain, and it's a very famous story. And everybody who knew him said, that's the way to go. Yeah. He got his applause and died. And, then, and, and he was replaced in that show, but then by the time the Tonys rolled around, they remembered Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen, and he got a Tony nomination. Somebody said... What a way to go. The last thing he ever heard was laughter. That's right. That's what exactly right. What you want. That's right. When did you decide that you were going to start going backstage and then meeting these people that you had seen on stage? The same day Mrs. Leboff took me to Fiddler. I, again, don't know what possessed me, but I turned to Kenny and David after the show, and I said, come on, let's go backstage. This guy, Harry Gaz, he's really good. He was playing Tevye. And I don't know why the stage doorman let me in. Because I, yeah. I don't want to get, I, I don't want to talk about too much of the stories because everyone's going to read it. But there, yes, there was that time that you would you would consistently go to the same show because it was a longer show. Was it yeah. 1776? That's I can't right. remember. Yeah. And, and 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 I'm like reading it, thinking, how in the world did that stage door Johnny was like, yeah, I let this little kid come in, yeah. And, and the actors were like, oh, hey, you know, like, <laughs> and 
Everything stays. And, and, and can we talk about the fact that not only, you know, do ticket prices cost more, but the other thing that's changed dramatically is going backstage. I yeah. mean... Yeah, um, we've heard this from... Yes. Let's say I have a friend who's in a Broadway show. Yeah. They don't let me go backstage and knock on his dressing room door. They yeah. have kind of a waiting area now. That's they right. don't want people wandering around backstage. Now, yes. I don't, it was a simpler time and I guess more trustworthy time. Yeah. And listen, they weren't stalkers. And, and also, by the way, the, the stage door was not the way it looks today with yeah. barri- with police barricades yes. and because that has to do with people getting autographs mm-hmm. selling them on eBay uh, taking selfies yeah. which yeah. didn't exist yeah. so you know when i would go backstage there'd be nobody there yeah it wasn't a thing and again i don't know what made me think it was part of the experience but i i decided it was mm-hmm. and from that day on i did it i will tell you one story that i love and i'm not sure it made it into the book but I used to go back and get the autograph and talk to the actors. And one day, I was visiting with Colleen Dewhurst, who was one of the great Broadway actors. Class. Um, just two-time Tony winner and just a magnificent person, and everyone adored her. And I'm talking to her, and she's being so kind to me. And I said, would you sign my program? And she took the program, and she took the pen, and she looked at me for a moment, and she said, you know, I should be asking you for your autograph. And not only was that incredibly sweet, but I thought to myself, boy, this whole autograph thing is kind of silly, isn't it? You know, I, and I stopped. I stopped asking for autographs. Interesting. And shortly thereafter, I actually stopped going backstage. I, I just, I was able to hold on to the experience in a way that didn't require that. You know? Yeah. Were you performing in shows when you were in high school? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay, tell us, give us the high school resume. Well, I was very What's fortunate. Your... And again, here's another thing. And I don't want to sound like... Grandpa Simpson in my day, <laughs> Pluto was a planet. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but no, um, I'm sorry, what was the question? What were your high school credits? Yes, well. Lay that resume on us. I had a high school where we did eight shows a year. What? There was budget that? for it. Uh, we did a fall play, a children's play, a winter concert, a full-fledged opera with an orchestra. In high school? I did Tales of Hoffman and La Boheme in high school. <laughs> a spring musical, a spring concert. You just can't imagine. Oh, my gosh. One hell of a theater teacher then. Oh, by I the mean... time I left high school at 18, I had 35 plays under my belt. What was your theater teacher's name? Oh, I had many. But um, there was... Uh, the, 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 the person who really influenced me the most, actually, was a teacher I had in fifth grade who went to the theater. And she'd come back on Mondays with her playbills for me to look at. And this was at the time before I started going to the theater. I lived vicariously through her. She even invited me to her home to look at her playbill collection. So Mrs. Johnson should have been, now that I think of it, should have gotten an acknowledgement in my book. We're acknowledging her now, Mrs. Johnson. Mrs. Johnson. Yeah, thank you for getting Ron off on the right path. That's exactly right. That you then had an extensive career in television and film. Yeah. Um, But musicals, you weren't like... Well, it was always my intention to star in musicals. I thought that's where my career would lead me. And it didn't. I became very quickly known as as a character actor, even at a young age. And I hit it big in commercials, and I kept trying to get into the to the theater, and I did have some nice gigs, but they never lasted long, because after all, that's the nature of the business. Right, exactly. And then suddenly I made this decision to just go to L.A. for one pilot season and ended up staying for almost 30 years. Mm. So how old were you when you went to L.A.? Uh, about 25. 
six, yeah, around there. And let's, when you were in Los Angeles, were you still going to the L.A. theater scene? Yeah, or but it's, it's just not, it's, it's, it's not the same. Yeah. It's yeah. not the same. I'm from there as well, so yeah. I know that it's, it's yeah. not as rich as over here. I only had one experience where I went to see a, a Broadway show that was finally coming to L.A., and when I sat in the theater, I actually thought I was in New York. And when I came out into the street and I was in L.A., I was kind of in shock. Mm. The, the play was Robert Morse uh, as True, where he played Truman Capote. Because uh, maybe it had to do with the set, because it was the view out his window of New York City. Yes. And yeah. it was such a believable, extraordinary kind of an evening yeah. in the theater that when I came outside, I really thought I'd, I was in the Booth Theater, as opposed to, you know, where I was in L.A. And Robert Morse, I mean, like, you know. It's... Do you remember the first time you were working in film and television and you were working with someone that you had seen on stage. Yeah, sure. And who was it, and were you starstruck? Yeah, I mean, those things happened all the time. Uh, I did a commercial with Harv Presnell, who was the original oh. unsinkable Molly Brown, and, yeah. and I, you know, he was shocked there was somebody on the set who knew who he was, right? And um, uh, I did get to do St. Elsewhere, Rob. I was on it. What? <laughs> what? And that, for me, that was like going through the looking glass because it was one of the first gigs I had in L.A. And I loved the show so much. When you're on the set, it, it, it almost is like Alice. You know, you're, you're suddenly, you're behind the scenes. And there was Bill Daniels. So, you know, he and I had a fascinating conversation that day. Were there any people that you have met over your time that surprised you by their generosity? Somebody that you thought, okay, there might be more business-oriented, or they might be a little colder, and you just found they were filled with warmth. You know, I've been blessed. I mean, a lot of my friends have had experiences with nightmares, where they've worked with yeah, actors sure. yeah. who are horrible. I don't know. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with me. It's not like I bring goodwill and suddenly everybody's kind. But for the most part, I've had great experiences, not only working in the theater, but also in film and television. I mean, you know, I've worked with directors like Mike Nichols and Clint Eastwood and, you know, Chris Guest. I mean, these are, this, this is the creme de la creme, yeah. you know? And so I've been very fortunate, very blessed. Um, but, no, some of the actors who were so kind to me... I do an entire chapter in my book on Julie Harris because, yes. I, I mean, I waited for her by the stage door. It was one of the few times where they said, just wait here. I wasn't going to actually be invited into her dressing room. But <laughs> she, she saw me and looked at me, and she said, oh, you have such beautiful hair. And she ran her fingers through my hair. And I was 12, and she was so beautiful. And I... I was just absolutely just gobsmacked. Oh, and yeah. I told this story to the late Fritz Weaver, who just passed, because oh. he was a dear friend of Julie's. And when I told him that, he went, well, that was Julie. She was a very sensuous woman. Oh, Fritz. <laughs> Fritz is, uh, Fritz yeah, is speaking Fritz, from experience. Fritz, Fritz, Fritz had he, something to say about Julie. He knows. What was your favorite Broadway theater to go to? Oh, you know, I, uh, and it probably has everything to do with the fact it's where I saw my first Broadway show. But the 46th Street Theater, which is now the Richard Rogers. Did you ever watch somebody on stage and go, oh, my God, I've got such a crush on her? Oh, well. Who was, who was the... Well, and on him. I mean, you know, on this oh, Robert, yeah. the Robert Preston thing was extraordinary to me. Um, you know, that was the other thing. When I did see I Do, I Do, it was the first time I'd ever seen, you know... You know these larger-than-life characters in front of me, and I—I I was in the, you know, the sixth row, and and I had to take my glasses off and go. Is it really happening? You almost wanted to reach out and touch them, you know. But you know that never fades. I got to see Audrey McDonald do her uh, Billie Holiday, and I sat. Um, uh, your audience needs to know that it was cabaret style, 
and I had a table down front. I mean, she was in front. She's, she was as close to me as you guys are right now across this table. And I felt like reaching out and touching her. I'd never been that close to that kind of genius. And so it never fades. You know, that, that thrill of what you get when you go to the theater uh, cannot be duplicated by any other experience. By any, uh, you can watch a movie and nothing that you do in the audience is going to affect what's happening up there. But when you are having this kinetic just give and take that happens between audience and actors in a show. There's nothing that beats it, and I will never get bored of it. I, I, that's why somebody said to me, how come you're not jaded? You've seen thousands of shows, and you, you still have that incredible enthusiasm. And I don't know how else to explain it rather, other than I walk into a theater, and I'm thrilled before the show even starts. <laughs> and, and, and I have this great quote in the book. It's from the film critic Pauline Kael who was legendary and, and was a great writer, but she could be really tough. I mean, boy, oh boy. It, it took a lot for a film to pass muster with Pauline Kael. But James Wolcott, a fellow critic, used to go see movies with her, and he said every time you'd sit in the theater with her, just as the lights dimmed, she would take my hand and she would say, let us pray. Oh. And what she was praying for was a transcendent yeah. experience. And isn't that what we all wish for? Yeah. We don't, it's like actors who mistakenly think when they're auditioning, the people behind the table hate them. No, no, they want you to be great. They want their problem solved. They want you to cast and get home to their wives and kids. <laughs> we say that all the time. That's right. That's, that's, yeah. You always say that, Rob. It should never be forgot. Yeah. What is a performance that you've seen that you wish could have been preserved on film for future generations oh, to see Oh, there are so many. I mean, there are, we'll take what you got. There are so many, and, and your audience also should know that, you know, thankfully the library at Lincoln Center has preserved some of them. Yes. So uh, you can go there uh, for research purposes and, and revisit some of these great performances because the theater is, uh, you know, it's, it's effervescent. It's, it goes up in smoke. Um, uh, I would say that... I guess I'm going to answer with an obvious, an obvious one, which is it would have been great if we could have had the way they just broadcast She Loves Me uh, broadcast the original Music Man with Robert Preston because oh. as great as he is in the movie, he's on record as he doesn't like his performance that much. He really feels like it never... It, the theater experience was something else. And ask anybody that saw him in that show, and they will tell you. You know, it was a handful of one of the greats. And certainly William Daniels in 1776 was, again, he's in the film, thankfully, but on stage. As I say in my chapter on that show, because that show was my obsession. Yes. It's the show I saw 12 times. Um, he, he, he played that role as if his life depended on it, as if his life, as John Adams, depended on the outcome of getting independence for America. I never saw an actor that committed until... Ben Platt and Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. That is commitment of a level that is damn close to William Daniels. And he's 26 years old. Yeah. I recommend to anybody listening that Dear Evan Hansen is an extraordinary experience right now. Well, and you know that generation that is lucky enough to get into Hamilton, they, if they've never seen a Broadway show, can you imagine Hamilton being your first Broadway show? And you come out, and I'm sure you say to your, your mom, your dad, whoever brought you, I want to see another show like Hamilton. Right. And yeah. then it's the sad news to deliver. There aren't other shows like Hamilton. Yeah, that's the bar. However, however, 
I think Dear Evan Hansen is the kind of show you could send a kid who, whose first Broadway show was Hamilton, send him to Dear Evan Hansen. I think we've got two new, th- uh, you know, theater goers for life based on those two experiences. I dream the dream of days to come where sponsorship is high and money is forthcoming. That's beautiful, Kevin. No, I really added a voice onto that one, too. <laughs> I really was trying to go for something there. Listeners, we love creating this podcast, but it does cost money. Please don't make me sell my Angel record. Oh my gosh, the original cast recording of Angel. That, like, nobody has. Nobody has it. If you like what we are doing and want us to keep doing more of it, please head over to Patreon.com. What? P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Pat-reon. Pat-reon. Yeah, Pat-reon. Pat-reon. Yeah, once you're there, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends. And of course... We don't expect to give without receiving some great rewards. Such rewards include behind-the-scenes videos, shout-outs on future episodes, or episodes, depending on what part of the country you're from, (laughs) because I said episodes, and early access to some of our podcasts. Hell, for the right price, Kevin and I will come to your apartment and act out all of Agnes of God. (laughs) So head over, friends, to P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com to help us out. I actually thought your question was going to be, do you ever see a show and just... Wish you were up there on stage doing the part. Well, let's ask you. Is there one? Well, I did the whole time I went to the theater, but not anymore. Uh, You know, my acting career is a bit on hold because of my rebranding myself as a writer and theater historian. Uh, You know, I'm really not auditioning these days, but uh, I'm open to, you know, coming back to it. But for right now, this is is my life, and I'm committed to, to doing this and spreading the gospel as this audience member and, uh, and, and, and great lover of theater. Uh, but, but no, I don't see a show now and sit there and go, God, I wish I was playing that part. I don't. It doesn't even cross my mind. What, what was the, uh, the impetus to make this shift? To, to writing. Yeah, and just well, I've always to explore written, it. Uh, I've always written. I, I have sold screenplays. I've actually had uh, a television movie that aired on Lifetime. I, I wrote an episode of Murphy Brown. It is one of the ones where they brought back uh, Wally Shawn, who, always, who yes. played the guy who didn't make the, the F... The, the, the team, yes. uh, and uh, he was named Stuart Best, and that was a homage to Pete Best, the drummer who quit the Beatles, and Stuart, I can't remember his name, but he, was, he quit another famous group. That's what his name meant. He was this sad sack guy that should have been part of the Murphy Brown team and never was, and I wrote, I think, his third appearance. Um, was, I like Murphy Brown a lot. It was a fun episode. Just I remember I the do. title of it because I get residual checks. It was called Hero, Hero Today, Gone Tomorrow. <laughs> and that's a title. And that's a title. Um, what I was going to ask you this, is there any musical or show that you saw that you thought this should have had a much longer life than it yes, did? Yes, yes. There's actually a chapter devoted to uh, a musical I felt was, as I called it in the chapter, the near miss, because it came that close to being not only a hit, but I think really one for the, one for the record books. Uh, it was uh, the last show that Bach and Harnick ever wrote, uh, The Rothschilds. Oh. Which, if you have that CD, you, you, you probably listen to it score. and say to yourself, how come this wasn't yes. a hit? But it, there was a lot of reasons for it, and I go into it because I interviewed more people for that chapter than any other. More people are, are still around and alive today. Uh, the five Rothschild sons yeah. are not only still around, they're still good friends. Oh, yeah? uh, Hal Linden is around with us. Oh, Manny no. Eisenberg, who was the general manager of the company and yeah. a great Broadway producer, was around. Sherman Yellen, who wrote the book. Sheldon Harnick, who wrote the lyrics. I uh, I, I, I spent time with all these people. Yeah. See, uh, of course I saw 200 shows, and I'm not going to talk about 200 in the book, 
then the book would really be 500 pages or more. <laughs> I'm fine with that, by the way. <laughs> well, I, maybe there's going to be up in the cheap seats part two. I would you never know. Yes, the sequel. But, but the thing is, I picked a few shows that meant something to me and I think would really mean something to the audience and represent certain things. So, obviously, uh, The Near Miss, The Rothschilds. I have a chapter called The Bomb. And I picked a musical that really essentially represents all bomb musicals, but... Oh, and you want to know which one it was? It was Dude, wasn't it? It was Dude. Yeah, tell us about Dude. Well, I'd lo- I could talk about Dude for days. Dude for days. And the set. The set. Dude was a musical that came to Broadway in 1972 that was the brainchild of Jerome Ragney, who was the co-author, co-lyricist of Hair. Oh, that big old hit. Yeah, a big old hit. And he was a rich man, and uh, there were people who wanted his next show. And... He was a little out there. I think he smoked a kind little a too much weed. Yeah. And uh, he, he, <laughs> he did another musical with Galt McDermott, uh, who wrote the score to Hair. Uh, but this time they lost the other partner. It was a trio that created Hair, Ragney, uh, McDermott, and James Rado. James oh, right. Rado was not a part of Dude, and maybe he could have helped pull it together. <laughs> but Dude was a disaster. Dude was, uh, dude was uh, I mean, infamous in its time. Um, let me tell you how hippie-ish dude was. When I first opened the paper, because I can't remember there was no internet, there was no way to know what was going on on Broadway except to open the New York Times. That was it. That was your sole source of in- information. And I, would, I wouldn't know about a show until I read the ad. Really. I mean, how else would I know? And I, so I opened up the Times one day, and there was an ad for this new musical, Dude. And I go, oh, Galt McDermott, General Ragney, I know hair. This could be fun. And then I looked at the way that the seats were being sold. Instead of orchestra, front right. mezzanine, and rear mezzanine, it was the woods, <laughs> the treetops. The, I mean, I'm not joking. I didn't know that. I didn't know. Where are you sitting, Sadie? <laughs> I sat in the treetops. I sat in the treetops. So I'll give you an idea of how much grass was being smoked backstage. Oh, and um, I got to talk with some people who were in Dude, so that's a really fun chapter in the book. Um, and then not only do I do just a few shows, I also do profiles of four actors who, again, just like these plays, they mean something to me and I hope will mean something to the people reading the book. Uh, two of them are very famous, but, you know, they haven't you know, been on Broadway in 30 years and they're passed away. So uh, Julie Harris is one and Maureen Stapleton, who I know oh. is a favorite of yours, Rob. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Um, and many people will know her from movies. She won an Academy Award uh, and from television appearances, but you didn't live until you saw her on stage or Julie Harris or John McMartin, who recently passed, oh, and who oh, I devote an entire chapter to. Well, let me just tell your listeners this John please, McMartin story. Because, so I chose to do these four actors. The fourth one is a, a wonderful character man named Joe Mahar, who uh, you would know from his appearances on Seinfeld and other things and movies like In and Out and Sister Act, but, but a wonderful Broadway actor, a great, great comedic Genius, one of Nathan Lane's favorite comedic actors, oh. John Lithgow. I mean, and I spoke to both of them about Joe. He was a marvelous guy. But <clears throat> of the four people I'm profiling, only John McMartin was still alive. And <clears throat> I didn't really know how to get to him. He's famously shy. If you Google John McMartin plus interview, good luck. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, there was nothing on him. Maybe he talks to a reporter on the red carpet on the way into the Tonys when he was nominated because he had five nominations in his career. And I was with Hal Prince, and I can call him Hal because he said to me, call me Hal, which were the three favorite words anybody said to me in this whole process. <laughs> call me Hal. I said, I really want to do a chapter on John McMartin. He said, you should. He's a great actor. You've got good taste. I said, but, you know, he's so notoriously shy. He said, he'll talk to you. Hey, I don't know what he'll say, but he'll talk to you. 
You call Charlotte, his wife. You call Charlotte. You tell Charlotte how sad Jack has to talk to you. And that's how I got to sit with John McMartin for two hours. Oh, wow. And then, and then while I'm writing the book, he dies. And would you believe this? I had the forethought to send him the chapter. And I got an email from John McMartin that, and that's how the chapter ends now, you know, which was not the original intention of how to end the chapter, but he said it was the best review he ever received. So, so special. Yeah, that's, again, that's what made this whole experience such an extraordinary one for me. Um, And it's been almost four and a half years since the day I sat down with William Daniels in Arts Deli in Studio Silly. Rob is nodding, where every sandwich is a work of art. Arts Deli. (laughs) And sat with William Daniels at lunch, and that was my first interview. And here we are. It's almost four and a half years later. And the book <laughs> will be available to you, I swear. If you order it, you'll get it in the mail right away. We're, I'm, we're, I'm, we're very lucky because we got to read an advanced copy of it. Uh, it is one of the best books on theater I have ever read, hands down, period. And I'm not saying that because you're in the room. Uh, it is really remarkable, and it celebrates so many wonderful people. But you have such passion and such enthusiasm for the people that you've encountered, and it just comes through on these pages so beautifully. If you're and, I probably, and probably uh, to your listeners right now, I mean, you can hear yeah, the, well, the passion in my voice. I you, love it. I if, love it. And, and again, there, there's no way I'll ever be jaded. Uh, the last line of my book is that, you know, I'm, if I live another 20 years or 30 years, I will be that guy heading into the theater with my cane in one hand and my ticket in the other. God love him. Every time I go to the theater and there's some unbelievably elderly non-genarian ahead of me, I'm in no rush to get to my seat. That person has made an effort to get to the theater today. Like so many of us, you'll have that same feeling when the house lights go down of like... Let us pray. Yeah, let us pray. Let us pray. Let us pray. Oh, that's special. What was not included in this first edition that you wish could have gotten in? An entire chapter. I, I, did, I actually did five actor profiles, not four. He's really renowned as a film actor, but the two performances I saw him on Broadway have never left me. Uh, his name is Robert Ryan, and Robert Ryan was a great film actor. Yes. Uh, Martin Scorsese thinks one of the greatest film actors there ever was. Yeah, he's the star of a Broadway musical called Mr. President, yes. that Irving Berlin's final musical. But an incredible film actor. Incredible actor, nominated for an Oscar. Uh, he's in so many movies, uh, had a great career. But when I was young, uh, you know, 12 years old, I saw him in the front page, which I consider the great American comedy. Mm. He played the role Nathan just played. Oh. Then I saw him a year later in Long Day's Journey and Tonight, which I consider the great American tragedy. Wow. It was my first time where I saw an actor who I went, oh, my God, he can play comedy and drama. Yeah. It was a revelation. Yeah. And he was remarkable in both shows. And I got to speak with Stacy Keach and James Naughton, who played his sons in that production of Long Day's Journey. Jeez. And they had such great stories, and they're not in the book. So, uh, you know, I had to do something. Uh, it was long. Um, so, yeah, that's the one thing in the book. The uh, and there were so many 1776 stories. That was my longest chapter What by was it far. about 1776 that triggered such passion in you? Yeah. Well... I think it had a lot to do with William Daniels. It wasn't the same as Preston, because with Preston, I wanted to be him. Mm. (laughs) William Daniels, I kind of admired from afar. Um, But I think that 
there was, and well, here's this word again, passion. It seems to keep coming up. Yeah. That passion he displayed, and also that shows remarkable. 1776 is, that, it goes yeah. against every reason why it should have been a success and succeeds. And we should say, I mean, I think you know and we know, but like with Sherman Edwards, who wrote it, you know, he spent like a, a decade yes. toiling away, and he was not a, a playwright by, by no. nature. He wasn't even a songwriter. He was a jazz jazz. That's right. Player. But he wasn't, uh, you know, this was a passion piece. Of passion That's again. Exactly. You know, and I, and I, I w- I'm always fascinated by that, like the one show he ever wrote was was a hit, and you know, and and it and it had this legacy, and yet. Well, and, and at first he attempted to do it all book music and lyrics, which is very rare. I mean, right. Lynn can do it, and Jonathan Larson did it, Meredith Wilson Meredith did it. Wilson. End of list. Yeah. End of list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Sherman Edwards tried to do it, and it wasn't until uh, the Stuart Ostra, the producer, had the the great notion of bringing in Peter Stone, who wrote what is. You know, considered by many to be the great book of a musical. Yes. I mean, that and Gypsy are the ones that are really spoken about more often than, yeah. than any other. That sequence was like what, 25 30 minutes. minutes. So 30 minutes where oh there's God. no music. There's no that, music. The audience is riveted the whole time anyway. Riveted. Yeah. And, and, and this is not, this is a story that actually I, I lost. Um, Peter Hunt, who's, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, was 30 years old when he directed this. this it was his very first Broadway show. Uh, he, he had this 30 minute book scene and he didn't know how to cut it. Everything that was, that was happening was important, and, and he thought, I'm not going to get away with it. So he called his buddy from Yale, uh, Richard Malpe, the lyricist. We just talked to you yesterday. Okay, and, and, and he said, Dick, I, I've, I've, I've got a show. Uh, I've got a 30-minute book scene. I don't know. Uh, is it going to work? He went, no, there's no way that's going to work. And Hunt hung up the phone and went, all right, as long as I know it's never been done before, why don't we try it? Isn't that kind of great? That's a wonderful, wonderful way of looking at theater. And nobody ever questions that scene because you are riveted by it. Yeah. But 30 minutes in a musical without a song. And that's why there's three songs in the opening sequence, then quickly uh, the short book scene that introduces Richard Henry Lee, Mm -hmm. a showstopper in that Lee's of Olver Jr. number, then no song for 30 minutes. So he he uploaded it. He he, he front-loaded with songs. And then hits you with who these people are, and then, but Mr. Adams, which is a great song. Oh, yeah. It's brilliantly constructed. It's a brilliantly it constructed really show. And by the way, the very first uh, uh, rendition of it on Broadway, when it opened, it had no intermission. Neither did Follies. Both those shows were intermissionless, and uh, intermissions were put in later. No, Follies never had one put in. No, I don't think no, so. No, in no. revivals, there, yes. there yeah, is one. But I think the original Follies never had one put in. For, personally, I don't like intermissions, unless... It hits a, a height where you can't go on. Yeah. Uh, I'm telling you I'm not going at the end of Act 1 of Dreamgirls. Cannot go on. Who would listen to the next number? Right. <clears throat> You've got to bring the curtain down yeah. and take a break <laughs> and go, whoosh, right? <laughs> but Hamilton could go without an intermission. I mean, you know. Oh, absolutely. It's to sell a lot of soft drinks, right? Yeah. We love- and go to the bathroom. And some merchandise. I'm seeing an off-Broadway show tonight. I already know ahead of time. 75 minutes with no intermission. My kind of show. Love it. What do you think tonight? Wakey Wakey by Will Eno at the Signature Theater. Oh, I hear that's supposed to be fantastic. He's a good playwright. I want you to name for me a couple of performers that you think a younger generation getting into acting should know about, but they probably don't. Well, that's why I did the profiles in the book. You know, if you don't know who Julie Harris was, you better go watch The Bell of Amherst on YouTube. You want an acting lesson? It's all there. We have Julie Harris. Right. We have John McMartin. Maureen Stapleton. Maureen Stapleton. And Joe Mahar. Those are the ones profiled in my book. Great. Who our listeners probably know, like you said, if they saw them. Give me two more. Two more you think people should know. And besides Robert Ryan, who we had mentioned got caught. Exactly. Um, Well, I mean, I saw so many great performances. It's always hard. I mean, 
I, I think your listeners all know who James Earl Jones was, but oh my God, to have seen him in the Great White Hope. I, I, I was sitting in the second to last row of the Alvin, now the Neil Simon, yeah. for $3.60, and <clears throat> he blew me out the back wall. Mm. Blew me out the back wall of the theater with that power. Um, wow. And I often like to say, what if he came off stage that Saturday afternoon, threw his, you know, undershirt against the wall and went, nah, what a rotten performance I gave today. Which is why an actor never really knows his effect on an audience and should never, ever judge it. You know? Well, I love the, I mean, I'm not going to give it away, but the, the, the Richard Kiley uh, opening quote, I think is, yeah. is, it speaks to that, you know, imagining that kid. Well, that was a performance, Richard Kiley and Manila Mantra. I was lucky enough to see that. You did? Oh, yeah. You're a very funny man. I'm sure you know that. <laughs> What was the greatest comic performance you've ever seen on a stage? Wow. Um, you mean somebody who had me in stitches? Isn't that interesting? These are questions I'm, I'm really happy you're asking because I'm going to have to come up with some, some answers. Uh, and here I am sitting with my volumes of my, my shows right in front say. of me. You know? Um, you know, I was so lucky to see actors like you know, Jack Albertson and Sam Levine and the Sunshine Boys, you know. Uh, that was one of the original shows I saw. Um, and, and Jimmy Coco and The Last of the Red Hot Lovers. I mean, Jimmy Coco. I'm talking about Jimmy Coco. Oh, you said... No, no you, but if they thinking... got married, that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's actually Coco, C-O-C-O, and then C-O-C-O-A, Coca. She was almost Coca instead of Coco. Im- imaging Coca. Coca-Coco? Was that what we heard? <laughs> what if they got married? She would have been imaging Coca-Coco. <laughs> She'd be one of the greatest drag queen names. That's in, exactly in right. Yeah. No, no, but Jimmy Coco, who did Last of the Red Hot Lovers, That's right. Uh, who was in a whole bunch of the Neil Simon movies in the 70s. Yeah. I kind of consider him a precursor to Nathan Lane in some No question. Too. I feel like that there's that lineage there. No question. Also did a lot of Terrence McNally stuff. Great yeah. actor. Great. Well, the part, that, the, the part that Nathan played in It's Only a Play two seasons ago, that was played by Jimmy Coco. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He was a muse of Terrence McNally's before Nathan Lane. So that's a very apt analogy. And left us way too soon. Yeah, way too soon. Yeah. 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 So yeah, oh, certainly some of those people in Neil Simon plays were, were, were hitting it out of the park. You got to see the great boulevard comedies. I did. Which they don't really do anymore. We really I love that, that you use the term boulevard comedies because yeah. you ask what I cut from the book. I did a whole tangent on what a boulevard comedy was. Oh, I don't... I oh, don't Kevin's know. giving a face. Yeah, oh, no, I don't know that. Tell him. Tell him what's a boulevard. Comédie de boulevard. It's French. <laughs> It's French, a comedy of the street. Uh, it was uh, a play like 40 Carats, which I saw Julie Harris do, which originally was French, so it is a true right. boulevard comedy. Um, it, it was a play that basically has gone the way of the dodo because now you get it free on television in sitcoms. Sitcoms. Yeah. Oh. It's basically a one-set play taking right. place in a living room uh, where funny things happen. Right, right. And they don't do plays like that. Anymore. Lighthearted, but yet amusing and fun. It, and very yeah. light. Fun very silly. Yeah. Very frothy. And um, Cactus Flower was another one that wow. ran for years. Uh, the Voice of the Turtle was a two-character play that was a, a boulevard comedy. It ran for like four and a half years. Yeah. I feel like there's scenes you do in acting class Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but Neil Simon's comedies "Come Blow Your Horn" yeah. certainly was a Boulevard comedy. He got more sophisticated Suite, yeah. by the time he did Plaza Suite. He was doing comedy drama. They were they were becoming much more sophisticated. Let's talk about Plaza Suite to go back to Maureen yeah. Stapleton for yeah. a second. Um, the, thank God, at least one of her performances right. is, is preserved. Uh, tell us what it was like to see Maureen Stapleton on stage. She, well, here's the thing: uh, I didn't realize it until I started looking at these 200 shows closely. 
I saw her in every Broadway show she did from 1969 until 1981 when she retired. I saw her in like seven or eight shows. She used to do a show a season. And um, she had a kind of quiet power on stage that was undeniable. Um, She fit every role she ever played perfectly. You never questioned that she was Maureen Stapleton. She, she was always that character, whoever it was. In Plaza Suite, she played three characters because the concept of Plaza Suite are three plans that take place in the same suite at the Plaza Hotel with different characters checking in. Brilliant. Very clever. Uh, and uh, that was revelatory, although I did not see her do it with George C. Scott, who created the role. Because as Neil Simon is quoted as saying, George C. Scott was the best actor in comedy I ever saw because he played it like drama. He played Plaza Suite like King Lear. And maybe that is the secret. You know? Yeah. You don't try to be funny. Yeah. You know, when you raise the stakes and you play the comedy at its hilt as if you were playing King Lear. It doesn't fit every character, right, but, but it certainly did in, uh, in, in certain elements of Plaza Suite. Uh, but Maureen Stapleton was, I mean, her swan song was The Little Foxes with, Ma- with Elizabeth Taylor. And as the uh, co-author of her autobiography told me, there were scenes in Little Foxes, where Elizabeth Taylor would have her back. No, it was actually, Elizabeth Taylor never had her back to the audience, because everybody wanted to see Elizabeth Taylor. It was a big deal when she came to Broadway in 81 and yeah, did that. She'd yeah. never done Broadway before. It was a big hit. And the author knew Maureen for years. That's how she got to co-author the book. And she said, I saw the play more than once, and there were scenes where Maureen would have her back, and we were supposed to be looking at lit. Maureen Stapleton was acting with her back better than Maureen Stapleton, than Elizabeth Taylor was with her front. That's how good an actress. She yeah. could tell what was going on just from looking at her from yeah. the Did back. Did you ever see her in Airport? That's a great performance. Airport? Yeah. It's Airport it's, it's, was the first disaster movie. It, it was the precursor of the Towering Inferno and Earthquake oh, and all yeah. of those oh, you've never seen famous disasters. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. there was Airport. Airport. There was Airport yeah. 75, Airport. I mean, they, they kept doing Airport movies. It was the highest grossing film of 1970. And Maureen Stapleton was up for an Oscar, beaten by her co-star Helen Hayes from Airport. But may I tell you who thinks Airport was one of the greatest performances of all time? Maureen Stapleton's work in Airport? Cherry Jones. I found I a quote. I that. found a quote from Cherry Jones saying, when I was a kid and I saw Maureen Stapleton in Airport, I went, oh my God, that's great acting. I loved finding that quote. She plays this wife yeah. whose husband uh, has a bomb on the plane. Yeah. And he's, gonna thre- he's threatening to blow up the plane. Yeah. And so she's still down on the ground going, oh my God, my husband's a hijacker. I had yeah. no idea this was going to happen. Yeah. And it's a beautiful performance. A beautiful performance. And so Cherry Jones says that's the one that... Well, the thing... It's the moment at the end of the movie. Everybody's gotten off the plane safely, but she found her way to the airport, this wife, and he dies in the, the, the plane. The bomb actually goes off on the plane. People survive. It's a little crazy. It's, it's a little crazy. He gets blown out the window, but nobody else does. You know what I mean? Oh, and, and anyway, yes. they survive, and, and, and you see Maureen Stapleton in the crowd of passengers just going up to people and saying, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. And... It, and the camera pulls back, and that's the end of the movie. I, I, oh. I'm getting chills just yeah, it's good. telling you it. It's a great... So anybody who wants to go stream Airport, it's a silly movie. It stars Burt Lancaster and Dean Martin yes. and has an all-star cast. As pilots, right? Wow. Is Dean Martin Burt, the Burt, Burt is the Burt is the guy on the ground. Dean was up in the air. Can you imagine Dean Martin flying an airplane? No. Oh, and the movie Airplane, which you is know, what, it's a spoof, say, a spoof of airport. Oh, a spoof okay. of airport and other movies, yes. Disaster yes. in the Sky movies. Totally. Like The High and the Mighty and yeah. Ceiling Zero. And yeah. Was there anybody that you wanted to interview for the book and unfortunately they, they passed too soon? Or they well, passed first, during the process? Well, first I have to tell you that seven people I spoke with are gone now in oh, the four and a half God. years. Yeah, Mike Nichols, who I spent an hour with. 
um, Fritz Weaver, uh, um, John McMartin. I mean, I, we, we lost it. Yeah. That's why getting these stories was so important. Yeah. Uh, yes, the person I most wanted to talk to was Dame Maggie Smith because she was one of Joe Mahar's great friends. How do I get to Maggie Smith? Yeah. So the only thing I did, and I never... I, it's the only... I got to everybody through personal connections. Mm-hmm. The only time I ever wrote to somebody's manager, agent, was Maggie Smith. And of course, I got this form letter back, Ms. Smith does not do interviews. Now let me tell you, if tonight I went to Joe Allen and Maggie Smith was at the next table, and I said, hey Maggie, I'm so sorry to interrupt your dinner, but I knew Joe Mahar and I've written a book, and she would say, oh, duh, Joe. You know, yeah. And I would have her in the palm of my hand. Yeah. I know she'd talk to me, but I just don't know how to get to Maggie Smith. Yeah. And I've written the chapter already, so that, that's passed. But yeah, Maggie Smith would have been quite a coup. Yeah. Part two, was there going to be a part two? Well, let's see how part one sells. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to continue to tell these stories. Uh, I, 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 again, urge listeners if they would love to hear more. The, my, my blog is almost daily. Um, today's column is on a Broadway musical from 1964 that opened on Broadway 53 years ago today. Bert Lars, last Broadway show, a musical called Foxy. Kevin's giving me a face like, we, never I, heard of it. I have, but I, we... With, with Larry Blyden? With Larry Blyden and, yeah. and Bert Lahr. With lyrics by Johnny Mercer. We have talked to oh, someone about Foxy. Know. Yeah. The well, the only person alive from Foxy is John Davidson, was the ingenue. Oh. <laughs> well, mate, that's... Uh, but wow. Foxy had an, a far-out, out-of-town tryout. You ready, folks? Yeah. The Yukon. Dawson City. That is where they tried out Foxy because it took place during the gold rush. Yeah, yeah. Whose brilliant idea was <laughs> they couldn't even find an audience. I mean, yeah, they who's gonna found, go see They it? pulled in Indians off the street. <laughs> Please. It's one Eskimo investor who but, loved it. But isn't that, but isn't that, so, it, so uh, if you want to read more about Foxy. So tell us about this blog. Yeah, I just decided to do it actually in order to promote my social, you know, media presence. And, and the name again is? Uh, you can get there at ronfassler.org, ronfassler.org. Um, and so I'm just writing about whatever strikes my fancy. So get this. I wake up in the morning. I have my cup of coffee. I sit down in front of the computer. I have no idea what I'm going to write about. And usually I go to like Today in History. Yeah. And I try and tie it in that way, but often not. Like, I went to see Jitney, which I recommend to anybody with an earshot and anybody within, you know, walking distance of the Sam Friedman Theater uh, by August Wilson. So I decided to write a whole, you know, just uh, research August Wilson and tell some August Wilson stories. Um, and it's, he's in the zeitgeist now, of course, because of Fences being a film and up for Oscars. Um, so it's a pleasure to do this. And, you know, I don't have to leave my apartment. You know, you don't have to go to the library to research. It's all there. Although I do have a lot of books on my shelves that... I'll never give up. Uh, my research books are kind no. of, you know, Love gold to me. Oh, advice. and speaking of which, yes, I've saved all my reviews. Yes, I've saved all 200 playbills. But, you know, today, I throw them away. I don't Dude, keep them. Really? Well, uh, your listeners should know, Playbill.com, they have something called The Vault. Yeah. And if you want to look up who was the stage manager of Foxy in 1964, you can read the program online. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have a studio apartment. There's just so much room. Right. Uh, no. And also these playbills don't mean anything to me because, you know, back in the day, now you look at them and you get to see all the cigarette ads for Silver Thins and Virginia Slims. You know, you know it's too much fun. And, I, and they're sacrosanct to me because they're the ones I held on to. I used to leave the theater, take two other playbills off the floor to protect my playbill. 
in case it rained, in case whatever. You get it? Oh, that's that's a yeah. level of nerddom that I. It is nerddom. I'm, I'm, no, but I'm like. So I had three pill. I had three playbills for every single show. Amazing. And when I was at Broadway Con two weekends ago, and I gave a talk, I brought along some extras and gave them out. I, I asked quiz questions and gave them out as as party gifts because again, I only need one. I don't need. I don't need three. What was on the your? Uh, what did you chat about at Broadway Con? Uh, the book. Yeah. But I had as my special guest, in Armitage. The seven-year-old Broadway theater yes. critic. You know him. Ian He's got a YouTube presence. Ian loves theater. I've gotten to know him and his mom very well. Oh. And so we did two kids' views of Broadway. Love that. Because... He's mini-me. Yeah. Except, you know, his mom takes him to everything, and I didn't start at seven. He started at five. Do you know what Jeez. little Ian's first Broadway show was at five years old? Waiting for Godot with <laughs> Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Good for you, Ian. Now, his mother took him because Ian is, is, is almost like a godfather to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mom's very, very good friends with Ian. So we're going to see, you know, Uncle Ian <laughs> in Waiting for Godot. She said... I had aisle seats because if he turned to me and said, Mommy, I'm bored or whatever, of course the kid was riveted because he's, he's a savant. I mean, he's, yeah. he's brilliant. Wow. He's brilliant. <laughs> and his acting career is taking off, folks. If you didn't know this, he's in Pretty Little Liars premiering on HBO this weekend. Oh, marvelous. And um, I can't say anything, but I know he's got another gig coming. Oh, right. Yes. Oh, that makes Mom me so told happy. me. Yeah, it's inevitable. He's going to be, he's going to be famous. He's talented. Who do you like seeing today? Which contemporary performers do you really like? Gosh, you know, I'll see anything Reed Bernie's in, and he just opened in uh, oh God, Man yeah. from Nebraska he's, last night. God, he's good. He's a great actor, and that goes for his co-star in The Humans, Jane Howdy Shell, who's oh. coming to Broadway in, in something soon. Yeah. Well, James Earl Jones still does theater. God love him. He's 85. Oh, yeah. I'm seeing him next Friday night at the ART in Cambridge at Harvard. I'm seeing him in Night of the Iguana. Did you know he's doing yes, Tennessee Williams' Night of the Iguana? Now, he'll spend the whole evening in a wheelchair, and I hope audiences don't think that he's, you know, he's ill. He's not. It's oh. just the character spends the evening in a wheelchair. It was like Little Night Music with Lansbury. You know? Oh, yeah. I did that with, with them, and, and that, was, that was, people thought that Lansbury Well, was... do you know the Hermione Gingold story? Uh, she would come out for the curtain call because uh, she spent the whole play in a wheelchair. Yeah. I don't know if Angela did this because I didn't see that revival, but Hermione would come out for the curtain call with a cane hobbling, and you heard, you almost heard people in the theater go, oh, she really, and then she kicked the cane and did like a, like a bit. Angela didn't do that? You know, I'm realizing now, Angela, I can't remember if, now it was like only five years ago and I did the whole run, but I can't remember if she walked out for liaisons and sang it with a cane, and I think she did now that I think about it, but she, she they, for a curtain call, I would help them out of the wheelchair so that everyone knew that they were like, they, were, they could walk, she and Stritch. I saw a production of Light, uh, Night Music once where the actress sang Liaisons. No, no. no. Liaisons. <laughs> What's happened to them? Lia- no, no, that's no. almost already no. too long. No. It's like singing trouble. Speaking of Sondheim, you saw Follies, the original. Yeah, but can I tell your listeners that I saw the original company for two dollars? That's what the last row for company was. God love them, Hal Prince charged two dollars for the last row of every Broadway show until. Uh, a little night music in 1973. I saw a little night music for two dollars. Isn't that incredible? And I said to him when I met him, I said, "If our interview does nothing more for me today than have the opportunity to shake your hand and say thank you for those two dollars seats, would you be shocked that he said to me, you're welcome, but do you know how many performances those seats went unsat in? What? People don't want to sit in the last row. Uh, that's why they moved it to the front row now, I guess. Aye, you know, aye. but they say the Follies was." 
you know, Follies everyone who was, saw the original production was like, there's no words, there's no superlatives enough to say how special Especially it is. the set and the actors. But yeah. can I tell you, I hate to admit this, don't think less of me, Company and Follies went right over my head. Uh. At 12 and 13. Yeah. I, think, I think, like wine, they, the more we age as humans, the better off now, they are. Now, it didn't go over the head of Scott mm. Rudin, who's the same age as I was, and went to see Follies 13 times. Okay? Whom you were, have Yes, I, I went to with. theater with, yeah. with Scott. Yeah. But uh, the thing is, you know, I, 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 I didn't really understand. I, here's what I said in my review of Company. Company, with a little play doctoring, could be a bright musical comedy. Now, it's funny, but that, <laughs> it's not what they intended to do. <laughs> they weren't out to make a bright musical comedy. And then here's what I wrote about Follies, and this is in the book. Oh, this is sacrilege, folks. Are you all ready? We're ready. I'm... Stephen Sondheim has written some good numbers, but most are bland and dull. <laughs> well, now to this 14-year-old in Buddy's eyes and losing my mind, were I a little bland and dull. It's not as dull. gripping as Hello, Dolly. It's not as gripping <laughs> as Hello, Dolly. <laughs> Very good callback, Rob. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I want to speak something more personal about you, what you've done recently. Uh, the theater in uh, Massachusetts. Yeah. That you've, that you've I've returned to my with. summer stock haunt. Yeah. I drove off its campus in 1976. It's the Priscilla Beach Theater in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And I was lucky enough to do three seasons of stock there at 17, 18, and 19, mostly with college students. Yeah. I was the youngest one there. I was jobbed in. I was grandfathered in. They were all college students, and I was there as a high school student. Um, And most of them went to Tufts. I feel like I went to Tufts by osmosis. (laughs) And um, this theater, when I was playing in it, was already 100 years old. It's it's the oldest barn theater in America. It's a true barn. It was a working farm, uh, and when I was there, it was falling apart, falling down. And this was, again... 15 years ago. Flash forward, I get an email two years ago from someone saying, you may not remember me, Ron, but I lived down the road when you were doing the final summer. I was even in Fiddler on the Roof. Um, You recruited me to be in the show, but mostly I cleaned the toilets and sold sodas at intermission because I wanted to be part of it. Little boy down the road. Well, he's a very successful businessman. He bought the theater and has pumped his own personal fortune into restoring it. And, and the pictures I saw oh my of gosh. the original, Beautiful. I mean, like, well, no, now, but yeah. but, but before oh, he did day? anything, it was like, no, I mean, like, oh. when, when it was dilapidated, yes. I mean, it was it was condemned by it the was, city. I it mean, was it condemned. Was literally it had, condemned. No shows had been done in it for about a dozen years. So he truly uh, turned this He resurrected. Took an old eyesore that would have been bulldozed if anyone had gotten their hands on it and condos would have been put up there or something. And instead he bought all the surrounding properties. Uh, the, 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 it's not only a, a barn theater, but there's an old farmhouse that's been turned into living quarters, uh-huh. dormitories, and now it's a thriving place, and it- I was invited back to direct. He said to me, whatever you want to do, uh, just a show I can sell, and I chose Fiddler on the Roof, which was the last show I did, there. did there, and did it again. This time, my son came and played Perchick, oh. and then in a real, true serendipity, uh, I asked Michael Bernardi, a young actor I've known since he was in high school and sort of helped coach uh, along the way and mentor, to come and play Tevya. He's, he's 31 now. He was 30 last summer. Uh, Michael's father was Herschel Bernardi, who was the third actor to play Tevya on Broadway. I mean. And so Michael got to come full circle in his life. I was coming full circle no, with the Priscilla Beach Theater. I know. Everywhere. It's I chills. Mean, like, it's it's chills. beautiful. So I did Fiddler la- uh, the summer before last. I did uh, uh, Funny Thing Happened at the Forum last summer. Yeah. And this summer I'm returning to do the producers. Uh, how wonderful. Yeah. 
So I still keep my toe in, 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 in directing theater. And uh, Ron, where can we get the book? You can get it directly off my website at ronfassler.org or from Griffith Moon Publishing, griffithmoon.com. Uh, but it'll be at the Drama Bookstore in about 11 days. Great. So if you live locally, you can buy it there. Great. And it's going to be available at other bookstores yeah. around the country. It will not be available on Amazon just yet because Amazon is not very nice to first-time authors. We've heard this. Yes, yeah. This is, yes. yeah. They force you to sell it at a discount yeah. to a point where I won't make any money. Yeah. yeah. Will it be on any electronic devices? Or oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to do a Kindle. And I've got to do an audio book. We uh, want you to do an audio book. Yeah. Yeah. So that's in the, in the, in the making. Uh, and before we go, give a shout-out to your illustrator. Oh, please. Uh, Jeff York is a Chicago-based illustrator who spent his entire lifetime in advertising. And it was kind of a sideline. But he's been in Playboy and in... Um, uh, Gentlemen's Quarterly and all kinds of uh, publications with these extraordinary caricatures he does. Yeah. I mean, he really is a descendant of Al Hirschfeld. Um, he exclusively did portraits for me of Robert Preston and Zero Mustel and, oh, and even me. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm, when you go to my book and you see the author photo on the back flap, it's a caricature by Jeff York. Awesome. So if you go to my website, I think you'll see some of those caricatures, uh, and they're, they're really pretty remarkable, and I love having them in the book. My book also has a lot of photos that I paid the rights to have, um, and uh, I do recreate in a chapter called The Critic some of these reviews so you can actually see how I wrote them. I've got pretty good handwriting, but again, the spelling, the spelling. Unbelievable. Shall I leave you with my one last story of... One please, of my reviews. Yes, please. I went to see The Great White Hope, as I mentioned before, and James Earl Jones' performance destroyed me. But what I wrote in my review was that James Earl Jones is so magnificent in The Great White Hope, it will appall you. Now, that's funny. I mean, I used the wrong word, appall. I mean, it's, and I spelled it wrong. So I've been waiting 50 years to say to James Earl Jones, you won't believe this, Jimmy. This is what I said about your performance in The Great White Hope. So magnificent, it will appall you. And I get a pause, the likes of which, you know, hung in the air long enough to hang laundry from. And I, well, he's 85, maybe a little hard of hearing. Appall you, I said. And he goes, yes, yes. I said, I think I used the wrong word. He goes, no, no. Uh, My wife has often asked me, uh, when you played in the Great White Hope, did you get a lot of action? And I said, oh, no, no, no stage door Janes for me. No, no, Denzel can be in a Shakespeare play, and women will throw panties at him, but no. No, uh, I, I terrified women in that role. I, I put women on notice. No, a Paul is apt. And I thought to myself, all these years... I thought I'd said the wrong thing. It looks like I had a little more insight than I ever really knew. Is that wonderful? That wonderful? Really amazing. (laughs) 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.